0: So this is the work of Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn. She's a Nobel Prize-winning scientist. And she actually talks about, and this sounds woo-woo, which is why I reference it. this is a Nobel Prize-winning scientist, and this is her Nobel Prize in that voice. (laughs) Um, So her work talks about the fact that negative thoughts actually lead to cellular aging. So when we have a negative perception of the world and a negative uh, sort of viewpoint, what ends up happening is we create cellular stress. And one of the ways that you measure the cellular stress is the length of your telomeres. So telomeres are kind of like the shoelaces, the little plastic nibs on the end of our DNA. They're there to protect the DNA. When your cells are in a state of cellular stress, those little uh, telomeres, those nibs, decrease in size, and so your DNA is much more readily uh, subjected to a damage uh, through reproduction, or through you know, general copying. So when we meditate, Uh, Yeah, work shows that meditators actually have increased length of their telomeres. So their processes of cellular aging have actually been slowed.
1: Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies, transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. The ancients discovered many modernish sciences centuries before they would be rediscovered by Europeans. It turns out that technology, thought, and innovation can oftentimes go backwards losses of information like these can lead to large societal and cultural clashes and as we've seen in the past and we're seeing today there can often be a backlash against science and progress today we'll be diving into meditation neuroscience and the ability to self enhance ourselves to the point of superhuman performance it's a mind bender pun intended today we have ariel garden on the program ariel is the founder of interaxon the makers of muse a brain sensing headband. Muse is an award-winning headband that makes meditation easier. Through guided exercise, Muse senses brain activity and sends information to your phone or tablet, giving you real-time feedback, i.e. that that gets measured gets managed and improved. It's incredible. I've tried this out at their headquarters, and it was quite an experience meditating and having a bit of real-time feedback. Ariel's researched at some of the top neuroscience institutes in the world, displayed artwork at the Art Gallery of Ontario and Toronto Fashion Week, and works in the intersections of many diverse interests she's given numerous lectures on topics such as neuroscience of aesthetics and conflict and has been featured on several prominent television programs She's referred to as the brain guru. She's run a successful real estate business, spent time as a very successful fashion designer and a practicing psychotherapist. She regularly gives lectures at MIT, Singularity University, and FutureMed. Her lecture on TED.com had over a quarter of a million views, and she's keynoted some of Tech's top conferences. This was a very interesting interview. Ariel's incredibly energetic, and incredibly interesting person, and we had a lot of fun. Today we discussed the science of meditation and how it affects your brain. Why Ariel's passionate about neuroscience and its ability to evolve our species. How IoT and technological enhancements will shape humans of the future. The mental health problem we're facing and how to overcome it. Why elite performers tend to be meditators. The ways to consciously control and hack your brain. How technological innovation will impact our evolution. What brain scientists are just starting to understand. The reason capitalist incentive structures drive many of our most pressing problems and what the real future is for wearables. And now, without further ado, I give you Ariel Garden. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
0: Okay, so we're going to jump earlier than two days ago, and even earlier than before that. Let's jump right to the beginning. Actually, if we want to jump really to the beginning, I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. Uh, All four of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So along with that comes a different notion of kind of gratefulness to exist in this world. So, you know, an understanding of the trauma that came out of that, a disconnection from the trauma that they, you know, that they experienced. And I don't, I don't, you know, there's some ways in which this sort of informs my thinking and informs my work. So when you prompted me to go all the way back, that's probably where my all the way back begins. When we start just, you know, in my lifetime after my little embryo turned into an egg, uh, uh, which formed into the human being that is me. I was very blessed to have two awesome parents uh, who are both entrepreneurs. My dad's super creative in real estate and my mom, an artist. So she would paint these incredible large canvas, uh, like large-scale oil on canvas paintings. And as a small girl, I would sit there and watch her take a blank canvas. And first, she'd fill it in with charcoal and some scratches, and then she'd fill it in with colorful paint. And all of a sudden from nothing would be this whole world of like passion and energy on this canvas. And from that, I learned that you could create anything you want. If you have something in your imagination, it is yours to bring to the world. And you know, the world was, I felt when I was a child, the world was my blank canvas to make stuff out of. And that making things was the most valuable thing you could do, contributing objects and ideas and
1: stuff to the world. Have you always been creativity and do it focused?
0: Absolutely. I think as a child that was inculcated in me that to be creative and generative was sort of like one of the highest forms of being.
1: And how, how is that carried through? I, I mean I can see I can see the parallels with what you've been doing, but how do you see that in terms of how that's carried through to your career, design, muse, what you're doing now?
0: So at first my creative explorations, so they come out in many forms. I was very creative in exploring both the physical world, I made art, I was a clothing designer. Even in high school at a lot of clothing that I stole, sold to stores in New York and beyond. And I was also very fascinated by actually how the world works. So I was fascinated by like how the pieces of the world came together to create our perceptual experience. Why is it that this table is hard? You know, why is it that that color is red and we perceive it as red? And then once we can understand why we perceive the world in the way that we do, we can start to change and shift the world. So my interest in this really played out Through neuroscience, I figured kind of the highest way we could understand how we could make things is if we understand how we perceive them and experience them and experience ourselves. And I started to become interested in brainwaves as something that had both really tangible, real scientific information about the self, as well as seemed to have this like kind of numinal sense there, these kind of weird otherworldly energies that come off you. And I started collaborating with Professor Steve Mann. So Steve, uh, for those who don't know, is the inventor of the wearable computer. And he was the guy who literally created Google Glass in the 90s, well before Google ever did. And he had an early brain, computer, and system that he had used at MIT in the 90s, and he'd brought to the University of Toronto. And my like, early boyfriend at the time was working in Steve's lab and introduced me to him, and we started to collaborate. And that's where I met James Fung and Chris Amony, uh, the people who would ultimately become the co-founders of Muse, the company we then went on to create. And we started by making concerts where people could make music with their mind. So we would put a single E. G. lead on the back of your head and by by changing your brain state, by focusing or relaxing, you would switch your alpha or beta waves. And from there, we'd take that and translate it into sound. So you could literally hear what your mind sounded like. And then we started to take that idea and make it more complex. We put uh, musicians up on stage uh, playing synthesized instruments and uh, 48 people at a time in the audience, each wearing an EEG lead. And then as the audience would modulate their brain state, it would modulate the outcome of the museum's uh, musician-synthesized instruments, which would then modulate the audience's brain state again in this sort of regenerative loop.
1: Let's double-click on brain states. Can you explain a little bit more of the science for people unfamiliar? Cool.
0: Well, let's back up uh, one step even further. Follow the hyperlink from brain state into EEG. And the hyper, you know, the webpage on EEG pops up. It says uh, EEG is electroencephalograph. So it's the energy that literally comes off your head. So our neurons communicate electrochemically. They send electrical signals to one another. And those are modulated by uh, uh, molecules moving along a concentration gradient. And those are polar molecules. So as those polar molecules move, they actually cause a change in current. So our neurons communicate electrically to one another. And the sum total of that electrical activity can be read on the surface of the head. And so when you focus, for example, the gross overall activity of your brain tends to move into a higher frequency. So focusing, you tend to see increase in beta waves in the, let's call it 25 to 35 hertz. And as you relax, the sort of gross frequency of your brain drops to a lower frequency, typically the alpha range, and that's around 8 to 14 hertz, depending on who you ask.
1: And this is, so an analogy would be deep sleep, deep sleep being you're in a deeper state. So the waves are significantly slower. They're lower.
0: So in deep sleep, you're in delta waves, for example, and then uh, that's a very slow wave state. So people can actually learn to modulate their brain state and their brain wave state quite readily when you focus your beta increases, when you relax your alpha increases. And so we could take an electrode on the back of your head or anywhere on your head, actually, and be able to see those changes in alpha beta state. Then if you associate a light or a sound or a tone, some sort of you know classical conditioning to them, you can then, by getting real-time feedback, because as you get into beta, the light goes on, know that you're in beta state, and then start to reinforce and intentionally go into that beta state to turn on the light, for example.
1: Hey, Matt here for a quick timeout. I know a lot of this is highly technical and challenging if you don't have a neuroscience background. Don't worry. Ariel's around to break this down into simple science so that we can understand why, in fact, this matters, how we can use our minds to impact both ourselves and our environment, and much, much more. Enjoy.
0: And this early paradigm of being able to modulate brain state to modulate something outside of the world was a paradigm that we started to play with and explore quite extensively. So from these early concerts that we created, I got together with Chris Ameni and Trevor Coleman, two of my buddies, and we formed a startup. And the first thing we said is, okay, well, how can we show people the power of their mind to move physical objects? So we actually made a levitating chair in the main floor of Steve's lab. So we got a winch from Canadian Tire, put it in the ceiling, connected it through our EEG system. And ultimately, your change in brain state, your ability to relax and increase your alpha state would trigger uh, the winch in the ceiling to rise. So you could literally relax and levitate.
1: And you basically had a technology, you had a research focus, and then you were like, what the hell can we do with this?
0: Exactly. And then we're like, dude, we can do everything with this. And we did, you know, the silliest things you could imagine. We brought in all of our engineering and art friends and we would have, you know, hackathons and jams. You know, what can we create? We created thought-controlled toasters. And I remember our friend Connor created a thought-controlled Wheel of Fortune machine that would, like, spin lights and go do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, like one of the games in Wheel of Fortune. We created a Star Trek game where you're, like, actually replicated that game in the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where everybody's minds get taken over. Um, We did all sorts of silly, fun stuff until we sort of said, okay, well, it's the biggest thing we could do with our mind. And the Olympics were coming to Canada the next year. This was uh, 2009. I started this work in about 2002, 2003. And uh, we put together a proposal that we brought to the Canadian government to control the lights on the CN Tower, Canadian Parliament Buildings, and Niagara Falls with people's brains from across the country at the Olympics.
1: And I imagine that went over really well because TV networks always love something catchy.
0: You got it, dude. So we were this tiny, tiny little startup, literally three people in Trevor's basement. And here we were given this massive contract by the Ontario government saying, we want You kids with your unproven technology to be the future showcase of Ontario at the Olympics. And, and, you know, demonstrate our innovations capabilities to the world. So uh, we very clearly had to ramp up very quickly and figure out how we could create a robust technology that in a very short period of time, like two minutes, you could teach to anybody in any language and train them to then be able to control in real time the lighting on Canada's most massive icons.
1: Because otherwise you make all Canadians look dumb. You, you got to, it. You, know, you need to pull it off. So, so you're working on this. When does this eventually start morphing into, into a business? And how do you know what direction to go? Is it just guess and check?
0: So initially, there was a lot of exploration in the realm of thought-controlled computing. We actually coined the term thought-controlled computing because people would say, What? Well, well, what do you do? And to us, those ideas, you know, my thoughts control a computer, really clearly defined the interaction that we thought we were trying to create. And we created some you know, quite successful implementations of the technology, you know, not just sort of coined the term, but really, you know, made some of the kind of foundation works or examples in the space. People have been working in the space for a long time, probably since the 70s, but kind of able to to quantify it in a really effective way and create an SDK and lots of ways for people to interact with us. And then we stood back and said, well, you know, all this thought control computing is not really going to help humanity in any great way at this moment. You know, it's not like you can just think something and something magical will happen. It's a very binary system. And, you know, short of somebody who's disabled, who's unable to use their hands, we're not going to be able to really add tremendous value to humanity in a way that's really going to be meaningful. And we wanted to do something meaningful like my, my philosophy throughout my whole life is if it's not, you know, changing the world or helping somebody, then like throw it in the garbage. It doesn't matter. It's not worth your time. There's Why is that? Way. And
1: where'd you get the philosophy from?
0: I don't know where I got the philosophy from, but actually it's, it's, maybe it was sort of the sense that I came into the world with, you know, the privilege to be able to go to university and have a nice life and live in a peaceful society and not everybody had those advantages. So if I was given those advantages, I had to use them to my best advantage for the rest of the world. I was given this gift somehow of, of like what I consider to be a really optimal existence. And the only reason that like, I felt like I could make like, that was a reasonable thing for me to have was to then help other people with it. I have privilege so that therefore by definition, I have to use this to spread it to others.
1: How much of that was from culture? How much of that was from your parents? And how much of that was from meditation?
0: I don't think that much of it was from my parents. I mean, it referenced my grandparents being Holocaust survivors. So there always was this, you know, attitude of gratefulness and this, you know, that not everybody gets to live a good life. And somehow, you know, we ended up in North America, we ended up not dead, <laughs> we ended up having a good life. And that's something that you don't take for granted. So yes, definitely culturally, that was there. I think it was it wasn't really something I, I heard from my parents. So it was a pressure that I put on myself and I don't know where it came from. Meditation then was something that I actually got to later in life because a- along my varied path, I you know, then became a psychotherapist. I went deeper into neuroscience. And in those arenas also discovered the value of meditation, which is something I was fascinated with earlier on, but didn't really have the knowledge of her scientific backing. And then it wasn't until I actually started building Muse, which your audience doesn't yet know what that is, but I guess we'll describe it mm-hmm. shortly, that I got into meditation.
1: Who loves online training at their organization? Just about no one. It's a hassle to create and distribute and often tedious to take. And that's because you had to cobble it together. Authoring apps, learning management systems, and uneditable third-party content that looks like it's from the 90s. And none of these play nicely together. Enter Rise.com, the online training system employees love. Rise.com, sponsor for today's episode, is an all-in-one system that makes online training easy to create, enjoyable to take, and simple to manage. Not only can you create, distribute, and analyze online training easy in Rise.com, you can also get tons of training content that's beautiful and well-researched, enjoyable for learners, and awesome for everyone. And for the first time ever, you can edit, customize, and mix pre-built content with your own. If you're ready to disrupt the way your company trains employees, start your 30-day risk-free trial today at Rise.com disruptors. That's r i s e.com slash disruptors d i s r u p t o r s perfect and just in time for covid when it's hard to see each other and online training is a must rise.com slash disruptors for more details and your 30-day risk-free trial why is neuroscience seemingly so far behind other sciences and what do we need to do to put more of an emphasis on this especially as Mental health is a massive challenge in most developed countries these days.
0: Dude, the brain is really complicated. <laughs> I mean, asking why neuroscience is behind other sciences—I don't think that's—I don't think that's the appropriate phrasing for the question. Um, you can ask, you know, we can say it's amazing that we've made tremendous gains in neuroscience, and look how much further there is to go. You know, there's, there's—it seems a tipping point or an unlocking factor in so many different arenas of science. You know, if you look at the leaps and bounds that we've made in DNA, you know, DNA sequencing was excruciatingly slow and expensive process until we reached a critical tipping point, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, and then everything accelerates and becomes easy and all the pieces fit in. You know, the brain is something that is very difficult to understand because you were the organism trying to understand itself. You know, the questions of the brain are in some ways as complex as as the questions of consciousness. You know, how does... an organ you know how does an organ that is combined of you know molecules moving along a concentration gradient how do those molecules moving along a concentration gradient then get a will that can then exert their will upon those very same molecules in the concentration gradient it's a complex problem and you know what we the complexity of the question of consciousness for example you know also extends to all sorts of concepts and learning and memory like how to create meaning like that's kind of like the basic question in language and that's very difficult thing to answer you know for the same reason the consciousness question is difficult and we can look at the areas of our brain and say okay well you know we've now located that consciousness is in area x y and z but that doesn't necessarily tell you how it actually arises through the complex interactions and in other sciences we can do science on rats and you know the rat models are good enough to kind of maybe suggest what could be happening in a human and even then it's they're never perfect but we don't have the same kind of one-to-one relationship to be able to do a study on, you know, language, et cetera, in a rat that we can do in a human.
1: I'm going to say touche for Ariel here. This was very brilliant and something I and many others overlook. In many sciences and in many fields, it is simply more difficult to do research, given the nature of the subjects. And I'm glad that Ariel brought this up here to point out some of the challenges that certain fields like neuroscience face.
0: And it's extremely difficult to do studies in, in humans. And then you can it's not simply as easy as localizing a behavior to a part of the brain because parts of the brain also have multiple behaviors that they're responsible for. You know, we have about 100 billion neurons and trillions and trillions and trillions of connections. Now, it's, it's not a simple map to make. There's certainly efforts that, you know, to, to map the connectome, to, to map all of the connections. But even if we map the connections, we don't necessarily know how we derive meaning from them. You know, those are the computations at an order of complexity that, that are extraordinarily difficult to to manage
1: yeah it's uh it's very interesting. I was more bringing up if you look into not so much neuroscience but psychology, psychology hasn't really changed in terms of the tools that psychologists are given in the past hundred and hundred and fifty years. You kind of evaluate symptoms and then decide something There's not a lot of testing that goes into improvements, so I was listening to a podcast recently with a psychologist, and they were looking primarily into the the effects of diets and specifically. Different, different nutrient deficiencies on mental health and functionality. I just was wondering why it seemed like there was so much. It seems to be very much, there are a lot of moving parts. Why is it that in most fields, we evaluate a lot of the moving parts? And in neuroscience or psychology, it seems like not a lot of them are taken into account.
0: So again, I would challenge you on that. I mean, in, in neuroscience, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of papers evaluating Thousands and thousands and thousands of moving parts. You know, evaluating the difference in the D one receptor from the difference in the D two receptor, evaluating tiny molecules that you will never know the name of and will never remember. There is, you know, hundreds of thousands of interactions that have been cataloged with an attempt to understand them. But the complexity of the total problem is way too big to be readily understood.
1: So what's the best way to, to move forward then when something is so complex that you can only understand sections?
0: It's a good question. And so, I mean, part of the approach that science has taken is, and this is true for all sciences, you do your PhD on an extremely narrow thing and try to apply it and try to, you know, understand one a tiny little bit of the world. You have other people who are trying to make large connections. You know, neuroscience is now spanning to the field of neurocomputations. So you have people looking at it from the electrical angle, from the neurophysiological angle, from the neuropsychological angle, angle, from the molecular angle. You know, people are trying to look at the problem from multiple angles. And then you have people who are able to, you know, where people who are able to span across disciplines to be able to have a holistic view or bring, you know, different angles of it together. I don't know how to solve the problem. You know, the ConnectM was one suggestion of how to, you know, if we could just map everything, then we'll get it. Uh, But I don't even believe that's a solution.
1: As we move forward with everything being a piece, ideally, we're working towards making people healthier, happier, smarter, more successful, more intelligent. And then happiness is a big driving force. What would you say are the, the most important factors when it comes to mental health research and specifically what you guys are doing in terms of how we can try to move towards a, a higher species of human, so to speak?
0: So, you know, the tact that I have taken and, and there are, you know, many, many, many ways to approach this problem in terms of how to make ourselves better, how to move humanity forward the approach that I've taken is to look at meditation and to do so through a neuroscientific lens and to teach this in a way that's really tangible and actionable. Um, so this would be, I guess a great time for me to describe what Muse is and what it does to, to sort of answer that question. Bingo. Cool. So Muse is a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. It's a clinical grade EEG that gives you real time feedback on your meditation. So when you, uh, the metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when you're thinking, distracted, you actually hear it as windy or stormy. And as you come to clear focused attention, it quiets the winds. And so in this way, we take this sort of ancient invisible art that has a ton of data behind it as to why it's so good for you, and we make it something that's understandable and tangible and actionable and take the invisible process of what happens inside your mind and actually make it visible. Because part of the reason we're so bad at uh, moving forward in brain science and often moving forward in therapy is because You know, the only way to do that is through introspection, to be able to sort of pierce your own fourth wall and and look inside and be able to reflect back what's going on outside. So we tried to create a technology that facilitates that process that can help you actually know in real time what's going on in your brain so that you can then understand it, track it and change it. You know, as as they say, what you can measure, you can change.
1: Hey, Matt here to tell you how you can save 15% on your very own Muse headband. I tried it out. It was incredibly powerful for me. I was in their office, just in their little, they call it a muse space, trying it out and focusing on meditating and trying to, trying to clear the mind. It was definitely challenging, but having feedback made it significantly easier and makes you realize, wow, I'm not actually doing that great of a job without something. If you want to get 15% off, go to fringe.fm slash muse and check it out. It's a very cool product. It's a very cool team and it seems to be incredibly well proven by science. To make you more awesome as a meditator, a person, and to improve neuroplasticity. Again, that's fringe.fm slash muse, M-U-S-E, and improve, ideally. That's, uh, that's primarily what you're focused on. Let's pretend that a listener doesn't understand or hasn't looked that much into meditation in the science. Can you talk a little bit more about where it seems to come from and why it matters?
0: So meditation is one of the best things you can do for your brain, like end stop, There are now thousands of articles talking about meditation's ability to improve your attention, decrease your stress, improve your productivity, manage your health, and on and on. And the reason it's so good is multifold. So one of the first things that meditation helps you do is it helps you manage your thoughts. And so what we do is we, when you meditate in a focused attention meditation, your mind wanders, you notice it's wandered into a thought, and you bring it back to a neutral object, your breath. And in doing so, start to disassociate yourself from your thoughts. So, as human beings, what often happens is we have a thought and then we follow it and follow it and follow it and follow it. And we don't realize that we can actually gain control over our minds and change the course of our thoughts. Now, often when we have these thoughts, a good portion of them are actually negative and they cause us stress. And then we end up in a rumination about that thought. So, our amygdala, the little part of our brain that is searching for fear and danger all the time, is very easily activated. So, if you're, for example, sitting in traffic, your amygdala might say, Ooh, this is traffic. There could be a danger here. What are you going to be late for work? And it then becomes your amygdala's job to bring your, this like danger into your awareness and do it over and over and over again. So you pay attention to it. So you're in traffic and your amygdala's like, you might be late. And you're like, that's right. We might be late. Let's pay attention to this. And then you're stuck in traffic and your amygdala's still like, you're going to be late. And then you're like, right, shit, we're going to be late. Oh, And it says, we're going to be late. And it's, it's, it's its job. Um, and so we get very caught up in these anxious, ruminating thoughts. What meditation helps you to do is to disengage from these negative ruminating thoughts, so that they do not start to affect our physiology, they do not affect our behavior, they do not affect our thinking, and we can just take it as information and leave it. So it lets you get off the thought drain.
1: And it's prim- it's primarily driving forces from evolution. This is what kept us alive. This is what helped us pass our genes on via whoever we passed them on with. It was primarily these type of mechanisms that helped people survive. But we're starting to evolve past the point of traditional evolution. Is that fair to say?
0: I think that we can say that, that we're uh, utilizing tools that allow us to enhance ourselves to lead to faster and faster forms of evolution. You know, we're, we're still subject to the forces of evolution. You know, we still have sexual selection. Uh, we, we, the forces are still there. We're just finding interesting ways to hack that process and to really fast forward it. So, you know, these old evolutionary drives to keep us alive, we can say, hey, amygdala, it's all good. We're in traffic. There's nothing that we can do about it. Let's just switch to another topic.
1: Well, they're, so, all outdated. they're all outdated. It's like storing, storing fat in case you're, you can't find food tomorrow. But in general, that's a terrible thing.
0: <laughs> exactly. Totally outdated. So uh, meditation lets you get off the thought train. It also lets you get off the emotional roller coaster. So our emotions are things that, drive it, that give us information, and we tend to allow our emotions to drive us. And when you allow your emotions to drive us, we all know that that leads to often very unwise decisions and unwise habits and behaviors particularly when we're no longer living in this ancient environment in which you know our rewards and our fears meant life and death in the same way. So meditation lets us get off our thought train, disengage from our emotional roller coaster. And when you do that, you are able to see improvements in
1: Warning, we're about to jump into some incredibly interesting and possibly controversial science in that we're Nobel prize winning material here. How your thoughts influence your physiology, your DNA and your life. This sounds crazy, so I'm giving you the warning.
0: You're thinking, you're able to see improvements in your happiness and your day-to-day living. You're also able to see improvements in your physiology because there's this amazing relationship between our thoughts and our cellular milieu. Our
1: cellular what?
0: Our cellular, cellular milieu try to say that 10 times fast. So this is the work of Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn. She's a Nobel Prize winning scientist. And she actually talks about, and this sounds woo woo, which is why I reference it. this is a Nobel Prize winning scientist and this is her Nobel Prize in that voice. So her work talks about the fact that negative thoughts actually lead to cellular aging. So when we have a negative perception of the world and a negative uh, sort of viewpoint, what ends up happening is we create cellular stress. And one of the ways that you measure the cellular stress is the length of your telomeres. So telomeres are kind of like the shoelaces, the little plastic nibs on the end of our DNA. They're there to protect the DNA. When your cells are in a state of cellular stress, those little telomeres, those nibs, decrease in size, and so your DNA is much more readily uh, subjected to a damage uh, through reproduction um, or through you know, general copying. So when we meditate, Uh, Hertz work shows that meditators actually have increased length of their telomeres. So their processes of cellular aging have actually been slowed. So, you know, we think about, we can say like, oh, you know, think positively, you'll be happier, you'll live longer. Well, the research bears out in so many places that people who have a positive outlook live considerably longer and end up ultimately being healthier.
1: It is. I saw a very interesting TED talk though. So it wasn't necessarily the stress that was doing people in earlier it was directly correlated to belief in the fact that stress was negative for long term health which which is very interesting and counterintuitive until you actually think about it cuz most stress is generally it's it's generally not a problem it's only a problem when you get stressed about the stress and it becomes a it becomes a flywheel then then things escape so for for people that think a lot of this sounds woo woo a yes it may that doesn't mean it's not true. So correlation does not prove causation, but uh, a lot of people here probably listen to Tim Ferriss or probably listen to general high performer podcast. If you listen, a good 80 to 90% of them are meditation, are meditating. And I, that alone makes it worth, worth trying out if so many successful people are doing it.
0: Uh, so I can spend a couple minutes on the neuroscience of meditation if you want some more credibility here.
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Let's jump in. NeuroTalk. If it happens in your brain, it must be real. That's a joke because... Thoughts that happen are a mind or simply thoughts. It doesn't mean that the world or real, our perceptions do not create reality. <laughs> that was a really bad meditation joke. Wow. It's
1: okay. If you're, work, if you're working there, you assume other people are paying attention to that too, but they're not.
0: <laughs> Ways that meditation changes your brain. So this comes out of the work of Dr. Sarah Lazar at Harvard. She looked at long-term meditators and looked at a number of brain areas. The first one she looked at was the prefrontal, cortex. one of the ones that she looked at was the prefrontal cortex. So your prefrontal cortex is the attentional control center of your brain. It's the thing that is there to manage your day, organize, help you plan, and actually manage what you pay attention to, and also allows for inhibitory control, all the actions that you're not doing. Now, The bad news is that as you age, your prefrontal cortex actually thins. Yikes. The good news is if you're able to maintain a long-term meditation practice, you can maintain the prefrontal cortex thickness as you age. So in Dr. Lazar's work, she put long-term meditators and controls in an MRI machine, and she was able to see fifty-year-old meditators who had the prefrontal cortex thickness of a twenty-three or a twenty-five-year-old.
1: And that's basically like having elbow pads on when you're rollerblading. You're, it's basically going to help you.
0: <laughs> you got it. It's it's more than elbow pads when you rollerblade. It's like it's literally the planning. It's the organizing. It's it's the thing that makes us human and separates us from from apes and you know from the lessers.
1: Let's take a quick time out. What is meditation? Because this is something that. I mean, you can describe meditation, you can describe yoga, you can describe exercise, and they're kind of terms that don't ha- necessarily have a meaning. What is meditation?
0: Sure. So meditation's definition very clearly is a practice or training that leads to healthy and positive mind states.
1: That, that's, super, that's super opaque. So how do, how do I meditate if I want to start meditating?
0: So uh, let, me, let me just break that down for a second. And I, I kind of like, you know, I give that to you and I pause. It's a practice or training that leads to healthy and positive mind states. So all it is, is training your brain to be happy or healthy. It's like very straightforward. Meditation is not some woo-woo thing. Meditation is simply defined a practice or a training that trains your brain to be healthy and happy. Now, there are a number of different forms of meditation. So the most common form of meditation is a focused attention meditation. And there you are focusing your attention on a neutral object, often your breath. So meditation is actually not about just having your mind go blank and have nothing happen. Meditation is actually mind training. So in a focused attention meditation, you train your mind on, you focus your attention on your breath, your mind wanders, you notice it wanders, and then you bring it back. And then you continue to focus on your breath. As soon as you notice that your mind has wandered, you then choose to bring your mind back to your breath. So this is actually like distraction training. What you're learning here is to notice that you've been distracted and then to take your distracted brain away and focus your attention again. So you're really just working the muscle of your attention. And so if you bring this back into the practical world, if you're writing a long document or reading a long document, you're going to be writing, your mind wanders, it wanders onto something, you start procrastinating, you have to notice you've procrastinated and bring it back. What meditation helps you to do is the moment your mind wanders, you notice it and you bring it back to your work. And as soon it wanders, you notice it and you bring it back to your work. So you're actually honing this muscle of attention and sticking on task and being able to get through things faster and better and easier.
1: It kind of reminds me of when you learn a language, you're essentially adding an operating system to your to your brain. Every new language that you learn, you think slightly differently. And by being fluent in two languages, you're actively suppressing one while thinking about the other. So they've done they've done studies and they show that becoming fluent in another language quite literally is an upgrade to your brain because you're actively suppressing while also thinking so you're doing two things at once sort of meditation almost feels like that because you're while you're living your life you're also kind of monitoring for thoughts i I don't know what your thoughts are on that as someone who has actual credibility
0: (laughs) um so yes this idea of inhibition and action simultaneously is actually a really important one so you know as i said meditation is not a woo woo like letting your mind go blank meditation is like actively inhibiting a range of behaviors you don't want to do and actively choosing to engage in other ones. And when you, are, when you do two actions simultaneously, you definitely build flexibility into your brain. So yes, you're, you're correct. I don't know that I would, yeah. Okay, so in the active, let's now talk about a corollary to meditation. So meditation is the practice or the training of your mind. And from that practice or training emerges a skill called mindfulness. So you might hear about something called like a mindfulness meditation. That means that it's a meditation that is building the skill of mindfulness. And mindfulness is moment to moment, non-judgmental awareness of your thoughts, feelings, environment, and bodily sensations. And so in mindfulness, what you're choosing to do is intentionally be aware of the world around you. And when you do that, you are actually becoming, you know, the, the, like the aperture of your experience is widening significantly. You're taking in more information simultaneously and you're actually able to process it efficiently when you do that. So uh, what you said about, you know, meditating actively suppressing thoughts while you're walking through the world. Yeah. So that's kind of the skill of mindfulness that you build, the ability to manage information, manage where your mind is going and, you know, widen the aperture of your experience to include some things and actively choose to exclude others.
1: That feels like it's going to distract me from my smartphone, though. That seems problematic.
0: Well, if you want, you can widen the aperture of your attention to include your smartphone. <laughs> or you can choose not to.
1: That was meant to be a joke and missed terribly. So part of Fringe FM is to get, get innovative thought leaders on who are leading in their field. You're hands down doing that. But to find out what else they're interested in, what other tangential technologies and related fields keep them super excited. So what, uh, what's your stuff?
0: What's my stuff? So I have uh, quite into supplements and supplementation. I'm into generally like thinking about augmenting the human and wearable technologies and how we, who and what we become when we augment ourselves with technology and how you create technology for the human. That's that's a thing that's really fascinating to me. Contact ants.
1: Contact ants. Contact ants. Yeah. What is contact ants?
0: So contact dance is a form of dance where two or more people sort of exercise this art by being in physical contact with one another. And there's, it's, there's a system of interaction so that you can take weight from another person. You can share space with one, one another person. You can explore physical interaction in a way that's really beautiful.
1: Okay, I thought you said contact ants, like somehow alien civilizations or something you were you were reaching out to. I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the human IoT enhancement and where you see where you see us headed. So you're, you're working quite a bit with mind sensing, you're working with EEG technology. What is the cutting edge when it comes to enhancing ourselves?
0: So there are so many edges when it comes to enhancing ourselves. I mean, you look at the field of wearables and people ask me things like, Oh, you know, aren't wearables just a fad? It's like, no, wearables is where computing is going. Like, there is no reason for a computer to be in one place when a computer can be distributed around your body and in do so, you know, be taking on information from the world around you and seamlessly feeding that information about the world to you and about you to the world and to yourself. So we're going to be learning more and more and more about ourselves. And some of this stuff is like, you know, pretty Didactic is super straightforward. Like, how much water have you had today? You need to have more water. You can have a skin sensor that informs you when you're sufficiently hydrated. And some of it is really like numinal and emotional and not obvious. You know, the emotion stuff is more obvious, like you're feeling sad now, you're feeling frustrated now. Let's, you know, track our emotions throughout the day. But then there's the kind of fringier stuff around, you know, who do you become or who do you want to be when you're able to master your own mind and when you're able to fully calm your body or when you're able to kind of choose the way you interact with your own memories and your past. And, you know, things like therapy, we're always changing the way we interact with our past and our memories. So, you know, it sounds really scared and weird, but it's it's something that we already do through a therapeutic process and we'll probably be able to do through devices.
1: And who writes the code for those devices and how do they affect you and do you have input into that?
0: Yeah, these are all fascinating questions that don't have answers yet.
1: How do you think we're going to come up with answers as a society?
0: Unfortunately, I think it's the people who actually just do it who are going to be creating the answers. You know, it's not a place where you can have a philosopher that puts out a paper and then everybody follows it, or there can be a legislation and people follow it. It is going to be defined by the, you know, actors inside the companies who create these technologies.
1: Move fast and break things, right?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and try to fix them.
1: Yes. And, and try to fix them. Do you see with the, the cost of technology, this being something where only the only the well-off are able to benefit and thus have some type of runaway escape velocity?
0: I hope not. I mean, the way the technology goes, things become inexpensive quite quickly. I mean, much much of the world has a smartphone and most of the world has a cell phone. And it's not the kind of thing where, okay, well, people first needed to get telephone lines and then they got cell phones. It's the kind of thing where cell phone technology actually made it finally possible for somebody in a developing nation to have a phone and nobody ever needed to run a telephone line to their tiny little village. So certainly unfortunately some of these technologies will be, you know, expensive and initially available to the rich, but you know, hopefully we continue to have initiatives that try to apply this technology to developing world and to people all around and so much of, you know, trying to gain market share is around making tools that are inexpensive and accessible and making tools available for developers that we you know, so far have relatively rapidly seen the spread and deployment of, of technologies. And that's only going to enhance as, you know, people have access to things like the internet. And yes, the whole world doesn't have access to the internet yet. And yes, it's probably a good thing that they do, but that even is a contentious issue. But I think we're, you know, there's, it's funny within technology, there's this, you know, glorious idea of democracy, you know technology allows for the democratisation of everything airbnb has made it you know cheap to travel around the world uber you no, no longer need a car you can get anywhere you know we've, we've democratised all these things on the other hand we can't forget that uh, it's still out of the hands of many but often these innovations leapfrog in such a way that they end up ultimately possibly being more accessible than we would have imagined at the get go
1: and they also awesome. and they also have the effect of occasionally usurping democracy because as power as pow- as power changes hands there's uh there, there's some other things coming into effect um what are you most worried about today
0: i feel like there is so there's i'm very optimistic i am highly 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 optimistic not just because it's good for your health i do worry that there's this very kind of you know the nationalistic us and them backlash that pushes in the face of the inherent good that people have when they come together and they trust one another. so there's, you know, a real dialogue now about Mexicans build a wall, you know, these people, they
1: get get to pay for it too.
0: (laughs) And they get to pay for it. Yeah. You know, and, and a sense of othering and a rule by fear that really like laughs in the face of, sadly, of the kind of human social progress that, you know, my good is oriented towards a world in which we want to be able to come together and trust one another and break down barriers and in which scarcity thinking and hegemony begin to dissolve when you realize that these things are only created, these are only protections, like there's there's more than enough resource, there's more than enough of all of these things, but we create political structures that really make that distribution inequitable and then cause behaviors that, you know, cause you to try to, uh, try to protect them. Yeah, which is just this negative feed forward process
1: so so to summarize, capitalism and democracy have the wrong incentive structures. Is that a fair is that a fair summary for sure and I'm
0: not against capitalism. I mean, I certainly participate in it and uh, participate in the benefits of it. but the way that capitalism currently runs certainly does not you know benefit the most people and The way these incentive structures are created causes a set of behaviors that, you know, inherently alienate and frustrate one another.
1: If you could change one thing, what would you change? You can change two if you want. One's pretty hard.
0: Well, the problem is that we have to live in reality. So, you know, if I give an answer like, you know, basic living income for all, model after model has proven that that's a very difficult thing to guarantee. And like, it's not clear where the money comes from or how this works. Like, nobody's actually come up with a better a better structure, and I'm not going to pretend I'm smart enough to know what it is. So I can say nice things like you know world peace or basic living income, but uh, there's not a realistic model that demonstrates how we how we get there, how it gets paid for, and how you know bipartisan support is going to to lead to that. So, you know, I'm, I'm my own little corner of the world was if we can get everybody meditating, uh, then we can start to dissolve the fear and the scarcity thinking that, you know, generates generally inappropriate behavior that, you know, sees another as lesser. But I don't, I don't have a, a magic reality wand to, uh, to actually propose a real solution.
1: Yeah, it's a hard question. I imagine if we could take some of that defense budget and spend it on actual things that matter, we could do, we could do a bit of a better job. But I like what you're doing. As an entrepreneur, is it, is it down to entrepreneurs, startups, and businesses to make the changes that we need?
0: In large part, yes. If there is something you think you want to see in the world, just go out and make it. It's not as hard as you think. Just go out and make it happen. And the good news is you know, good ideas other people want to get on board with. Good ideas other people want to help and support you because they're like, that's good. Yes, let's make that happen in the world. So you may find it easier than you think to make your wacky great idea happen.
1: If you weren't if you weren't building Muse, what would you be doing? Any great wacky ideas?
0: Oh, my next next platform would be an environmental startup.
1: An environmental startup, interesting. Yeah. Why?
0: So the couple, a few things that I've been kicking around in my mind. One is a platform to teach women the tools for entrepreneurship and business because there's some you know basic fears that women have around that women can have around being in or starting a business that can actually be pretty effectively managed through and sort of taught through a set of behaviors. So that's, that's you know one potential future startup. The other is around environmentalism. And the way that we use single-use plastics is hilariously painful. It's just like you, you, you drink a bottle of water and you throw it in the garbage and you do it over and over and over again. And it's with no understanding of the life cycle of the plastics and the thought that you're like, I've recycled it, it's fine, or it is recyclable, so it's fine. But in reality, there's not a real understanding of the recycling process, how much actually gets recycled, what the load is to do that, etc. So I'm not against consumerism, uh, but there is this level of hilariously blind consumerism that is probably easy to tweak on a number of levels. And it's a problem that we need to attack you know, much more effectively.
1: Do you think the need- market can tackle it or do you think this needs government regulation on certain things?
0: So at the G7, they tried to you know, pull through a ban on straws. And they couldn't even pull a ban on straws. And straws are like literally by definition, the smallest piece of single use plastic there is. You know, it's a straw. There's a lot less plastic than that other than maybe ketchup packages. So yes, you know, legislation at the government level is very effective. And that legislation at the government level then typically leads to a lot of innovators coming up with solutions very quickly. Here's a hundred other kinds of straws that are not, that are not plastic. We can also definitely push it at the, at the level of the entrepreneur. But in order to do that, you need big businesses to sign on to really effectively push those changes through the ecosystem. And you need somebody else to adopt your packaging solution and to change all of their processes to adopt that packaging solution. So, you know, we'd be much better off if somebody like an Amazon said, okay, well, here's our packaging policy and tough shit everybody needs to follow. Or I mean, here's our shipping policy and tough shit everybody needs to follow. So, you know, with, with great power comes great power. And so if change from the bottom from entrepreneurship is definitely helpful to generate those novel solutions so that there are the options that people can prove them out quite, you know, on their own within their business, their small business, but without adoption from the top, it's literally pushing rocks uphill.
1: So does China win?
0: China's going to win a lot.
1: They're the only ones that can really push it and control it and seem to be doing an incredible job with that and just saying, we don't give a shit people, this is what we're doing. We're, we're we're curing climate change. We're cutting all of our emissions. We're doing these things now.
0: I really hope China wins. I have no problem if China wins.
1: It uh, it's it's such a dichotomy in terms of in terms of both sides. I've lived in I've lived in both cultures. They're both very interesting pros and cons of each. It's a it's a major complicated future. We're uh, we're headed interesting places. What uh what topics would you most like to see covered on the podcast? And who would you like to hear speak about it?
0: You should actually probably interview Steve Mann.
1: Okay. If you, uh, if you make the connection, I'll make it happen.
0: I'm happy to. Yeah, he innovates across multiple domains.
1: We're running a bit short on time. What is uh, one thing that you would like to leave people with?
0: So I'd like to leave people with the understanding that the stuff that happens in your mind is not what you actually have to live with. So the thoughts, the anxieties, the worries, the emotions, we have the opportunity to actually curate and manage that space quite effectively. And we are all incredibly capable, productive human beings who can really accomplish whatever we want, who can see whatever we want in the world come to life, at least on a small scale, if, if not grown from there. And any thought of limitation in your brain is something that you can actually really effectively work with and move aside and, so that you can galvanize the tools, the teams, the people, the stuff that you need to make your ideas come true.
1: There really are no limits. I've tested, out the, I've tested out the Muse, by the way, guys. It's, it's quite interesting. It's like listening to a, to a rainforest and the feedback is based off of how actively your brain's moving. It's, a, it's quite a piece of work you guys have put together. It's quite impressive.
0: Thank you very much.
1: What's your goals? How do you know you've conquered the world?
0: <laughs> I don't want to conquer the world. I just want to make it happier and healthier. So right now we sell literally all across the world. We've just translated into French, Spanish, uh, German, Italian, and Japanese are coming. So we have people all over the world musing. We have over 5 million minutes of meditation with Muse. So that's, that's a pretty good, you know, we've accomplished a first set of goals. We have hundreds of research institutions that use Muse, like Mayo Clinic uses it with breast cancer patients and on and on and on. Uh, and we get feedback every day about how we've changed people's lives, helped them get over anxiety, over, you know, sadness, change at work, you know, improved their daily existence. So I think I, think I feel pretty great about that. The next marker is to make it even more broadly accessible so that meditation and the management of your own mind is something that everybody can do every day.
1: Mind over matter. Guys, I have a challenge for you. Google guided meditation. There's a 32-minute video by The Honest Guys. Listen to that until you have to stop. And if you don't feel better afterwards, you can know that it's probably not, it might not be for you. But if you feel better afterwards, that's pretty much proof in and of itself that, there might be something here awesome thanks uh thanks for coming on today, Ariel. It's been fun
0: my pleasure.
1: Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day.